Welcome to our Good Friday service. We're so glad you're here. And this is always, I people surprised when I say this, this is my favorite service of every year. Certainly the resurrection is a reason to celebrate, and there is no life for us if there's no resurrection, and we'll do that on Sunday. But this has always been my favorite service every year. The Bible tells us that God demonstrated, proved his love towards us, and that Christ died for us. And I don't think there's anything more amazing than absolutely knowing that God loves me. So, for me, it's the most important time of the year. On Palm Sunday, if you were here, we saw that Zechariah chapter 9 and Psalm 118 predicted that there was a day of great joy coming, the day when, when God's people would meet their Messiah, the day when the Messiah would offer God's kingdom to the world. We also saw that no one really understood the meaning of Christ as king because no one submitted to the king of kings on that day. Everyone, regardless of how they felt about Jesus, had their own agenda that they wanted Jesus to fulfill. But the same prophecies that predicted this glorious day predicted that problem. They also predicted that God had an out-of-this-world solution for the problem. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to revisit these prophecies and see what God said would happen when the Messiah would meet his people. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Zechariah, and are ushers available to pass out some Bibles? So we're a little bit discombobulated on a Friday night. So if you need a Bible, the ushers are going to be moving through the aisles now, and you can wave your hand at them. They'll be glad to get you one. Also, if you didn't get the communion elements, don't panic. At the end of the service, they'll move through the aisles as we get ready to do that as well, and you can get one from them then. We're going to be looking at a few scriptures tonight. We're going to look at Zechariah 9, Psalm 118, and we're also going to look at John 18 and Isaiah 53. So Zechariah, Psalm 118, John 18, and Isaiah 53. Zechariah chapter 9, Psalm 118, John 18, and Isaiah 53. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, We looked at that on Sunday morning when it said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Behold, your king comes unto you. He is just and having salvation, lowly, humble, and riding upon a donkey, even upon the colt, the foal of a donkey. We saw how that phrase, having salvation, meant not just that he possessed it, but that he was bestowing it. He was bestowing freedom, liberation, help, And while Jesus sincerely offered the kingdom to Israel and to the world, humanity's rejection of that offer proved that we were rebels to the core, that we first had a deeper individual need for freedom. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, it tells us, all we like sheep have gone astray, all of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All of us have gone our own way. All of us have rebelled against the Lord. All of us have at some point in our lives seen we're either God through our conscience or God through his word said, do this, and we said no. Or it said, don't do this, and we said, I don't care. Every human being at some point has gone astray and turned to our own way instead of God's way. We needed help. We needed to be set free from our iniquity. 
It's an interesting word. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It's not a word we use every day, right? You know, you don't just happen to talk to your child and be like, you know, you're just bound up in iniquity today. We don't use that word. But there are three words the Bible uses to describe our sinfulness. Sin, which is the most common word, which means missing the mark. In other words, you tried to do the right thing, but you failed. You were aiming for the bullseye, and you hit the guy next to the bullseye, right? And we cause damage. Then there's the word transgression, which is when I see the no trespassing sign, and I say, I don't care, I'm walking on that ground anyway. Speed limit says 55, I'm going 65 or higher. That's transgression. But then there's iniquity. Iniquity describes that rebellious heart, which is the source of our wicked actions and our wicked attitudes. Iniquity is why we reject Christ. That's why we all needed salvation. When we look at Jesus' official rejection by the people around him, we see this iniquity firsthand. In John chapter 18, when Jesus was brought to Pilate, the Roman governor, the Jewish people, they could not execute a man. It was against the law. The Romans had taken that right away. And so they brought him to Pilate, and they explained to him, you know, it's not lawful for us to put a man to death. So Pilate, he entered into the judgment hall again, he summoned Jesus, In John 18, verse 33, it says, He said unto him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, said, Do you say this thing of yourself, or did others tell it to you about me? In other words, did you see something about me that made you come to that conclusion? I mean, did I have my nice king outfit on? Like, what made you say that? Did other people tell you that? Pilate's answer is pretty irritated. He's just like, Am I a Jew? I don't know what your king might look like. Maybe he looks like you. What have you really done? Like, what have you done? Why are you really here? What's, what's going on? What's the story? I don't think this is about kingship at all. You've upset them. How? Tell me the truth, and let me see if I can get you off. Pilate first dismisses Jesus. No way this guy can be a king. This is not what this is about. But then he is shocked at Jesus' claim and asks him to explain. He says, what have you done? And Jesus in verse 36 says, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate dismisses him. I, 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 don't, I don't know what your king might look like. I don't think you are a king. And then Jesus says, well, let me tell you what I am. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from here. And look at Pilate's response. He goes, oh, are you a king then? Are you a king then? Explain it to me. Jesus answered, the King James says, you sayest or thou sayest that I am a king. Literally, it means you say correctly that I'm a king. Anyone who says that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah is not reading a Bible. You say correctly that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. That's a powerful claim. I could never claim that. Everyone that's of the truth listens to me. You know, I I work really hard just trying to get my own kids to respect me and listen to me. 
There's plenty of people out there that do not listen to me, and there are many more people that don't care what I have to say. But Jesus says, this was my purpose, that everyone would listen to me, that those who are of the truth, they already listened to me. That's why I came into the world. But upon Jesus' explanation, Pilate despises Jesus' claim as worthless. Pilate said unto him, what is truth? That's not, that's not worth anything to me. Doesn't matter to me. Doesn't matter to anyone, in fact. Iniquity on full display. I'm not interested in a king like you or the kingdom you offer. I'm going to keep going the way I've been going. And then we see Jesus' official rejection, not just by the Gentile leader, but by the religious leaders. We keep going in John 18, verse 38. Pilate, he thinks that Jesus is more of a philosopher than a king. Doesn't really think he's a troublemaker, and so he decides, I want to release this guy. I don't find any fault in him, he said at the end of verse 38. But then he says to the Jewish people, the leaders, you have a custom that I should release unto you at one at the Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto the king of the Jews? Well, then cried they all again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. And now Barabbas was a criminal, a robber, a patriot, but someone who had had gotten arrested because he had broken the law. Not this man. That's our first response. We're going to see three responses here where they officially reject Jesus. How about I release him to you? No, not this man. We don't want him. We want someone else. Then in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 19, then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. He figured, I'll punish this guy and then they'll be satisfied. So the soldiers, they plaited a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. The, not just Gentile leader, but the Gentiles themselves rejected Jesus. Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, the religious leaders, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. I scourged him. I found out whatever crimes he did because that was the purpose of a scourging is to get them to confess. And so Jesus came forth wearing the crown of thorns, his whole body lacerated, the purple robe mocking him. And Pilate said unto him, Behold the man. He had to say, behold the man, because he didn't look like a human being at that point. But look at their response again. When the chief priests, therefore, and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, crucify him, crucify him, kill him. His very existence is like having a criminal in our midst. And then verse 13, Pilate was looking for reasons to get Jesus out of execution and the religious leaders said to him, if you're no friend of Caesar, if you let this man go, since he claimed to be a king. So Pilate, verse 13, he brought Jesus forth, sat down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. 
So then he delivered him, Jesus, therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. Each confession the people make, not this man, kill him, we already have a king. Each confession the people make reveals the extent of the rejection. Again, iniquity on full display. We don't want his help. We don't need his help. He's a criminal to try to fix us when our way is just fine as it is. He's the one who's wrong. There's a prophecy way back in Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 and 11. Jacob was predicting what would happen to his sons and their descendants. And when he got to Judah, which is the tribe Jesus is from, it says in Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11, I'll just read it real quick. It says, the scepter, the right to rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him, Shiloh, shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his foal, is what Shiloh will do. He'll bind his foal unto the vine, and his donkey's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Shiloh was a messianic title. In fact, in 7 AD, the Roman procurator at the time, not Pilate, a different man, removed the right of self-government from the Jews. That's why they had to get the Romans to pronounce Jesus as guilty to execute him. Chapter 4, folio 37 of the Babylonian Talmud records the Sanhedrin's response. Quote, they covered their heads with ashes and their bodies with sackcloth, exclaiming, woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah and the Messiah, Shiloh, has not come. But Jesus had come. He was a young boy at the time. And 25 years later, he rode in on this donkey that Jacob referred to, and he offered his people everything they thought they had lost. Throughout the Old Testament, the vine is always a symbol for the nation of Israel. Jesus bound himself to the vine, to, to God's people, but they vehemently opposed him and plotted his execution. And so when we read the end of the prophecy in Genesis 49, 11, it doesn't end with a crown, but it ends with blood and with judgment. Shiloh means he whose right it is. The scepter won't depart from Judah until he whose right it is to have it takes it. Well, he came to take it, and they rejected him. The Lord knew it all the way back, well, before Genesis 49 was written. Can you imagine what it would be like to have never done anything wrong, to have not wronged anyone, to offer them everything that's in their best interest and then to be treated like this? How do you and I respond when we're slighted by another person in even the most minute way? Very different than the Father and the Son do. Which brings us to the out-of-this-world love that the Father and the Son have for us. You see, instead of dealing justly with the rebels who dishonored their part of their covenant with God, Jesus gave us a better covenant. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, it mentions this donkey again. It's a recurring theme. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Your king comes unto you. He is just. He's a good man. Having salvation, he bestows freedom. Lowly, he's humble. He doesn't come with all the bells and the whistles. And he rides upon a donkey, even upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, the colt there means a young male offspring. Why not any kind of donkey? 
Why not any kind of donkey? Is there a reason Zechariah is so specific? In Mark chapter 11, 2, and Luke 19, 30, when they give their account of the triumphant entry, they both specifically mention that Jesus told the disciples, you need to use a young male donkey that's never been ridden on. Why? Well, there's too many verses to reference tonight, but you can find them on your own. But numerous Old Testament scriptures hint that an animal used for sacred purposes, it must never have been put to ordinary use. If you're going to use it for some type of sacred purpose, like an offering or a sacrifice, it could not have been put to normal use. You see, the crowds, whether they were Galilean and for Jesus or Judean and opposed to Jesus, they both saw the donkey as a political statement. But Jesus had a sacred use in mind. He was riding into Jerusalem to be the holy sacrifice required for our sins. It tells us in Zechariah 9:11, "As for you also, by the blood of your covenant, I have sent forth your prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water." Just before Jesus went to the cross, he explained what he was going to do for us. At the Last Supper, when they were celebrating the Passover feast, he with his disciples, in Matthew 26, verse 28, Jesus told them. He said this. He said, "For this is my blood." of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, the writer of Hebrews explains the significance of this. He says, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. In other words, his own body. He didn't go into a, a physical temple, but he took the temple of his own body. And neither by the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood. He didn't bring an offering of an animal. He, he brought himself, and he entered into the holy place because through his sacrifice, he'd obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer could sprinkle the unclean and sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, he had no sin, how much more shall his blood purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the new covenant, that by means of his death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. That is the freedom that Jesus would bestow for our rebellious heart against God. For the sin that made us prisoners at the bottom of a well with no water, with no way of escape, and no hope. Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, he did the impossible. We could not free ourselves. He set us free, not just from the things that we do, but from that iniquity that's in our rebellious hearts. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34, God made a promise to the nation of Israel. He said, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, not the one I made with Moses at Sinai, which my covenant they broke. They rebelled against it. Although I was a husband to them, says the Lord. I had always been faithful to them, but they were unfaithful to me. 
But this was his response. Not to put us away, not to wipe us out. Instead, it says, but this shall be the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For why? Because I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What an amazing promise. I remember my sin. He does not. Boggling, isn't it? But it's the truth. Now, that... That was not one without great cost. In Hebrews 9.22, it says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. In other words, God has to mete out justice or He's not good. When we see someone who does something horrible and they get away with it, and there's no consequences for it, and they can just keep doing it, we would say, if whoever's letting them do that's not good. So justice must be meted out. But this was God's out-of-this-world solution. I'll meet it out upon myself. Look at Psalm 118 with me. Remember we talked about on Sunday how everyone was quoting this psalm when Jesus wrote in Jerusalem, but not all of it. They didn't quote the part that said, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. The kingdom was offered, we rejected him. We said, we don't want this man to rule over us. Unless you think, well, that's Pilate's fault and Israel's fault, we do that too. I don't want to do it your way, God. So God came up with another plan, started with a new fresh brick. His own son, the cornerstone. And he said, this is the Lord's doing, it's marvelous, it's amazing. No one could have come up with it. No human being did. And what was the answer? Well, we get down to Psalm 118, verse 27, the latter half. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's he going to do? Verse 27, the latter half says, bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. The word there, bind, it means to imprison, to tie up. And then take him to the horns of the altar. The horns in each corner of the altar that the Jewish people used to sacrifice on were considered the most sacred part. In fact, when you look at every sin offering that a person could bring, there, there were different offerings you can bring based upon what you had. Like if you were poor, you were not expected to bring a, a big, huge bull. But for every one of them, Every kind of offering, the blood was always smeared on the horns of the altar. Jesus suffered the indignity and the pain of being arrested, beaten, illegally questioned, falsely accused, scourging, and then trotted off to the Romans for execution like a lamb to the slaughter. Isaiah 53 describes this Lamb going to the slaughter. I don't like it when the doctor grabs my arm to take my blood. I don't imagine I would have responded well if someone was trying to 
do these things to me. But Isaiah 53 verse 7 says this, he was oppressed. Isaiah 53 7, this is what it meant for the Lord to lay on him our rebellion, our iniquity. This is the justice that had to be meted out. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he did not open his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, mute, so he did not open his mouth. He was taken from prison and from justice who shall declare his generation. For he was cut off out of the land of the living. He was executed. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked. He died like a criminal and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. And yet, here it is. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And shall make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, the result, what is born from that. He shall prolong his days. He's not going to stay there. We'll get to that on Sunday. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities." Despite all the pain of seeing the son treated so wickedly, the father was pleased to bruise the son because what pleased the father was saving us. The son suffered all that pain and all that shame, but despised it, the Scriptures say, because there was a joy that came with that, with what he was accomplishing, ransoming us. I would not do that for an enemy, and I wouldn't let anyone do that to my son, even for a friend knowing that the Father and the Son could have at any moment stopped what was happening reveals a love that is truly out of this world. Which brings us to the remember part. We're almost 2,000 years removed from Jesus' crucifixion. We are far away removed from the brutality of that type of an execution. It's very easy to decorate, to sing, and to forget every iota of pain that he was going through. Every moment of experiencing the wrath, his own wrath, for what we deserved. We hear that, and I think it's easy to be angry with Pilate or the Roman soldiers or the religious leaders of Israel, but the truth is, whether I've acted as a decent human being or whether I've done despicable things, that rebellion is in all of our hearts. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we must remember that. It's what we're declaring when we hold the bread and the cup in our hands. We're saying it was my sin that got him arrested. It was my sin that got him beaten. It was my sin that got him illegally questioned and falsely accused. It was my sin that got him scourged, brought him into Pilate's hall, and sent him off to execution. But we must also remember that no one forced it upon the Father or Jesus. They chose all the shame and the pain associated with the cross 
out of their great love for us. And when we remember those two truths, there is only one proper response. And that's found at the end of Psalm 118. After it says what he will do, he'll bind the sacrifice to the altar with cords and he'll be imprisoned and then his blood will be smeared upon the altar. Verse 28 and 29, the songwriter responds with this. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. When we look at our proper response to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, everything he went through, it's this. You are my God and I will praise you. First off, that word praise, it means to publicly praise someone or their achievements. It can also mean to confess, which is what the phrase, you are my God, why it goes with it. When we praise the Lord, we're saying, I'm confessing something. You're my God. You're my King. And what you did was good. He also says, you are my God, I will exalt you. The word there means to raise up, exalt, lift up, to set on a high place. We are saying, not only are you my God, but you're my king and you have the highest place in my life. It's a proper response. And then thirdly, he says, oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Two reasons, because he's good and his mercy, his love endures forever. That word mercy there, it's loving kindness. It's the word hesed in Hebrew. It refers to loyal love, unwavering and unconditional devotion, a love that just keeps going and regardless of whether it's returned. A love that was willing to not leave us where we were, but to do whatever was necessary to rescue us, even if it meant everything we talked about tonight. The psalmist says, I'm going to confess him as my God. I'm going to own him as my king. And I'm going to thank him because he's good and his love never fails. That's why we celebrate Good Friday. To exalt him, to give praise, to lift him up on high, to give him the proper place in our life and to give thanks to the king of all kings who loved us so much that he went through all this to rescue us from our rebellion. The one who went through all this to make those who were his enemies his friends. Now, as we enter into the time where we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this evening, my encouragement to you is this. If one of those areas has maybe not been where you're at tonight, like if you've never owned him as your God, if you've never owned him as your king, well then change that tonight. The Bible says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Because whosoever believes with his heart and confesses with his mouth shall be saved. There's more in it. But the idea is that when we make a choice in our heart to say, I don't want to be a rebel anymore. I don't want to live life my own way anymore. I've been doing that. And I'm, I choose now to change my mind. That's what the word repent means, to change my mind. I'm going to turn away from living life that way on my own terms. And I'm going to decide to not be a rebel anymore. 
I'm going to decide that you're my king, you're my God, and I'm going to give you my life. If you've never done that this evening, this is not just a ritual we do. It's not just a holiday. It's a holy day. It's set apart. This is unique. It's, it's, again, it's not just a ritual we go through, but it has meaning for us. Because when we hold the bread and we're saying, okay, Lord, this is a representation of your body being broken for me. There's a few ideas that are wrapped up in that. First off, it's the idea that he took on a body, that he wasn't just a man, that he was God from all eternity, and he decided to take on a human body to take our place. For his body to be broken, even though he'd never done anything wrong, but out of his loyal love for us, out of his desire not to leave us where we were, but to rescue us. Because of the great love wherewith he loved us. God who is rich in mercy, he died for us. We who were the rebels, so we could be his friend. When we hold the cup that contains the juice inside of it, it's symbolic of the fact that he poured out his blood to purchase a new opportunity for us, a new covenant, a better way to relate to God, one that's not based on my own righteousness. Like if you come here tonight and you think, well, I want to get to heaven because I'm going I'm to just do the best I can. I'm going to try to be the best person I can be. Well, you've already failed. What's good enough? Seriously, what's good enough? You see, it's really easy to say, well, it's good enough if I do X, Y, Z. If I'm nice to people or I try my best, okay. Is that good enough when it's, when it's someone else doing it to you and it's, it's their best but it still hurts you? Is that good enough for you? Now imagine being God. And you observe, as it says in Genesis chapter 6, he observes the whole earth. And he says that the imagination of every man's heart is wicked. You think he's just going to sit back and be okay with that? You think he'd be anything resembling good if he would just sit back and be okay with that? When we aren't? When only it's done to me? You see, what we'll find if we really take an honest look at what we think is good enough is what we've done is we've created a little God to suit myself. I've created a God that fits into my own image. This is what he's like because I feel like I can meet that standard. Well, I don't think I had any imaginary friends when I was a kid but I did pretend like most kids do. And when you grow up, you realize, that was fun, but that's not real. Listen, the God out there who loves you and who died for you is very real. And he doesn't want you to perish. And so what we're remembering tonight represents what he did so we don't have to perish that we could be with him forever, that we could know him and experience that great love all the time. So if you don't know him tonight, I'm gonna have a time where I'm gonna pray right now and I'm gonna give you an opportunity to make a decision, to say, I wanna repent of my sins. I don't wanna be a rebel anymore. I wanna be God's friend. I want to have my sins forgiven. I want to put my trust in Jesus.
And I want to encourage you, if you've not done that, make that decision tonight. So Lord, here we are. We give this time to you now, and it's our desire to know you, to remember you, to reflect on what you did for us, both, Lord, from the perspective of ourselves, recognizing, Lord, that all of us have gone astray, all of us have turned to our own way. Lord, you created us. You made us the way we are. You, you said, here's how I want you to live. And Lord, every single one of us said, in some way, shape, or form, we said, nah. But Lord, you, we want to reflect on that, but we want to also reflect that you didn't leave us in that state. Instead, you said, I don't want you to die. My soul takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So Jesus, you came and you died for us. And we say, thank you, and we want to remember you this evening to say to you, you are my God. You are my king. Thank you for being good and for loving me. So with every eye closed, every head bowed, if you're here tonight and you want to not be a rebel anymore, you want to place your trust in Jesus, to repent of your sins and be forgiven, I'd like you to just lift your hand up because I want to pray with you tonight as you make that decision before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Anybody tonight, if you want to make that decision, just lift your hand high because I'd just like to pray with you as you make that important decision. Anybody before we enter the Lord's Supper? Amen. Anybody else tonight? Well, if that's your desire, just pray with me now and say, Lord Jesus, I repent of being a rebel. I repent of doing things my own way of, of my sin. And I believe you died for me on the cross for those sins, for my rebellion. Will you please forgive me? Will you please make me your child? In Jesus' name, amen.